Well, good morning. Uh, it's my privilege to come here and, and share the word with you. Apart from what Josh just said, why am I here? I think the sort of proximate cause for it is a couple months ago, Josh and I were having a conversation. I live in Long Beach. And I said something to him in the course of the conversation that was, I was pulling from or thinking of this passage when I said it to him. And he said, Eric, that's a sermon. Um, come preach it at my church. And I said, okay. Um, so, so here I am. Uh, for better or for worse, I'm here with you. And hopefully, God, uh, hopefully Josh was uh, you know, prophetic there and that it, is, it will serve the community. Um, in Mark 6, Jesus sends out his disciples, and he gives them authority over unclean spirits. And the disciples, they come back, uh, and they, they sort of marvel that they had the ability to cast out demons. Now, when I was a little kid, and as I was growing up, uh, anytime I've heard about things like that, it always sort of just troubled me. I didn't like it. I kind of ignored it, pushed it aside. And as I think about my own life and myself, and if I were sort of to give a sort of a psychological analysis of myself, I think that there's a couple reasons. When I was a child, I was raised at a cold, on a cul-de-sac, and I was raised in a secular home. I was raised in a home entirely devoid of God. And my, my parents never mentioned God or anything spiritual. And at one point in my young life, a family moved in across the street, and they were Christians. And one of, the, one of the kids was my age, and we became friends, and he started telling me about Jesus and walking on water and feeding the 5,000 and the miraculous, and I was really intrigued. And then he also started telling me about demons, and then I got really intrigued. I was like, <laughs> okay, so... Um, you know, and, and so I wanted to know more about demons. And, and eventually, at one point, I started thinking about them, and, and I said, can they, can they possess my G.I. Joe figures? <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, they can do that. <laughs> and I believed him. Um, and I actually remember one time laying in bed at night and I was looking at the ground and all my figures were on the ground and there was this one large figure with a big gun and a, a blonde beard and I remember looking down at him thinking, he might be possessed. <laughs> and it's funny now, but I was, I, was, I was scared. I was actually very scared. So I think that as I got older, I just said, I don't want to really think about that or talk about those things. The other thing for all of us, when we hear a story like that or language like that, we just think about sort of the cultural age that we find ourselves in. Uh, we live in a secular age. Uh, when we hear stories like that, we think of them as being kind of primitive or superstitious. Uh, we're shaped by scientific naturalism. Uh, we live in a world that's a closed system. There's nothing, that, there's nothing outside of nature that breaks in to explain the world and our experience of it. And the supernatural doesn't really have a say in our lives. Uh, the supernatural, for good or for ill, really kind of lacks explanatory power for most people. And, and at some level, we have taken that posture on. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says there's two fundamental errors that people make when we think about 
demons and things like this. He says one is we completely disbelieve in their existence. So, you know, in this kind of a passage, just eh, right? Or two, he says the other posture that we're likely to take is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in these things. So as we look today's posture and as I think about my life, um, oftentimes one of these two postures were kind of indicative of my own life. Um, but the passage that we're going to read today in, in Ephesians, especially with respect to um, disbelieving these things, what I want you to understand is in Ephesians 6, um, this passage is not just a mere appendix to the text of the book, right? It's actually the, the climax of Paul's letter, and it's the rhetorical conclusion that he's driving at as one goes through Ephesians. So what I wanted to do this morning, you have Bibles, have your Bibles with you. Um, I like physical Bibles, so you have to learn where the books go, and you have to move through it and understand how the scriptures were laid out, but I won't judge you if you use a cell phone. Um, so, so for a few minutes here, I'd like to rehearse the narrative of Ephesians until we get to this rhetorical climax and then ask how it, how it will affect the church. So uh, a few years back, my sister, I'll tell one more story. Uh, my sister went to this, you know, Ancestry.com and, and paid the money to, to find out what our, you know, our ethnic background was. And um, I, was, I was pleased because she paid the hundred bucks and I got the results. <laughs> So I said, yeah, let me, see what, let me see what we got. And, you know, I, was, I wanted to know at some level, you know, what my, you know, my DNA is, where I come from. It's exciting. Um, and I was hoping for something kind of spicy and exciting, but it came back and just said, 100% Northern European. <laughs> so anyways... Um, but, uh, so we do have this interest in our backgrounds, right? But, okay, so look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, Paul opens the letter. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. What Paul is doing here is he's tracing your and my true ancestry. Okay, our ancestry is traceable, according to Paul here, to eternity past and to the love and plan of God to rescue and redeem you, the church, his bride. That is your true ancestry. Church, you are not a mere accident of birth. You are not defined by your place of birth. Your true ancestry is traceable to eternity past, to the love of God for you, who destined you to be holy and blameless. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your sins 
are forgiven now and forevermore. So Paul, in chapter 1, moves on and he gives this sort of litany or sampling of these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. This is just a sampling, okay? We're at Costco, right? We're just taking a few bites of things, okay? So I'm not doing an exhaustive thing here, but notice what Paul says. In, in verse 1-4, he says, we are holy and blameless, In verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul says, He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of will, to the praise of his glorious... That's not the passage. That's not what I was looking at. We have been... Oh, there it is. Uh, We've been adopted. That's all I wanted to say. Okay, he's destined us for adoption. You've been adopted. Verse 7, Paul mentions that we have redemption through his blood. In verse 7, he also says we have forgiveness. Verse 11, we have an inheritance, an imperishable inheritance. And, and then moving on into verse 13, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's just a sampling of things. In, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says that we have been made alive together with Christ. As Paul continues to unfold the narrative, and two, Paul speaks of this new humanity that Christ has created. He's broken down the hostility between Jews and Gentiles and has created a new humanity. This new humanity, according to Paul, is marked by peace and reconciliation. And now, after chapter three, there's a a switch. Paul says, therefore, you know, he's, he's proclaimed all these truths, and now he's going to say, this is what it means for us, this is what it means for you. And there's this rich ethical section in Ephesians 4 through 6. Every single time in my life that I read it, I'm, I feel convicted by it. Okay, but there's this rich ethical section. And what Paul's doing here is he's, he's sort of, he's, say, he's saying, this is what it looks like to put legs on the gospel. This is what it looks like to grow up in Christ. Okay, and here's another sampling of things he says. Our life should be marked by speaking the truth in love. I'm just pulling things from the text. Making every effort to have unity. Getting rid of anger and hostility. Paul says, may your words be, bring grace to your hearers. There's even a section moving on where Paul mentions what are called household codes and how the gospel has affected the household codes of the, of the ancient world and how relationships, um, how the gospel speaks into relationships between fathers, um, between children, husbands and wives, slaves, masters. Um, and then finally... We get to, and then he gets to today's sort of exhortation where he says to the church, stand firm. Okay, put on the armor of God. So what I want to do now is I want to look to this broader cosmic perspective or context that Paul is bringing to light and ask this question. What does, what does this cosmic reality, what does it mean for the church and how we're supposed to live in it. So turn to today's passage, uh, chapter 6, and in verse 10, I'll start there. 
in, in verse 10, Paul says, <clears throat> finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the, uh, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul was an ancient figure. This is a first century man. And in the ancient world, and Paul is also adopting this posture, these assumptions, in the ancient world, earthly events had heavenly parallels. And so for Paul, you can't understand and you can't live rightly in this world unless you take into account the cosmic reality of which we are a part, which includes these powers. Paul includes these powers in, in this age. Paul says that this present age is marked by these powers. But what are they? These powers are supra-human cosmic powers. There seems to be a distinction in the Bible between demons and angels and the powers. A demon, for example, is something that's like a fallen angel, but there's these distinctions, and we're not, I'm not going to get into that. But in this context, uh, there are these, these powers. And like I said, there are these supra-human powers and they are in rebellion against God. And they are real. And they want to prevent God's good purposes for creation. They work to prevent shalom. They work to oppress humanity. And they work to foster human idolatry. The Bible knows of and speaks of personal sin, and the Bible also knows about institutional sin and dysfunction. But the Bible also takes seriously this other dimension. And it's a kind of evil that, that, that's underneath and that undergirds these two types of sin. It's a spiritual evil, and it's pervasive. It's dangerous. And that's why Paul wants you to put on armor. Because there really is a battle. Now this realm kind of functions in a sort of a more indirect manner. Via suggestion and, and, temp, um, and sort of temptation. Now, <clears throat> I, I have a painting uh, that here. This is a, a painting now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of talk about this painting a little bit to, to, to drive at what they do, not to make a, a direct correlation, okay? But there's this painting. It's in a, a, a cathedral in Italy called the Orvieto Cathedral. 
And it's, uh, it's a fresco, actually, by a guy named Luca Signorelli. And the name of it is The Deeds of the Antichrist. <clears throat> so now, if you look at the painting, you'll notice that, uh, so the devil is the horned one, okay? <laughs> um, and that is the Antichrist. And it, this is a, a, it's a larger fresco, so I, it's zeroed in a bit here. But you'll notice in the painting that the devil's hand is, is placed through the vesture of, of the Antichrist. But it looks like the Antichrist's hand. Everybody see that? And, and, and the way that I'm reading this and how I'm applying it to the powers is I take it to, to, to mean something that um, <clears throat> the powers, this is kind of conveys how they operate. They influence us and institutions of the world indirectly via suggestion. And we experience the powers through their effects. What Paul calls in this passage the wiles of the devil and deceitful scheming. Now, here's something. How do we know that we're in that we're experiencing this kind of darkness, the effects of this kind of darkness and, and, its, and its suggestions. Now, think about this. Think about the names that Scripture uses for the enemy. There is the devil. Ha diabolos in Greek. And the word for devil comes from the, from the verb diabolain. Okay, now the verb diabolain, from which we get the name devil, the verb means, this is important, to scatter, to cast apart, to throw apart. So, so scattering is, is sort of a, is one of the effects of the work of the devil. If you see scattering if you see breaking apart, you're seeing the effects of the work of the scatterer, the devil. Unity, community, bonds of peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, these are the signs of the work of the Spirit of God. The very opposite of scattering, of destroying. Look at our world today. It is rampant with scattering. We could, we could say so many examples, but just think social media alone is nothing less than a second-by-second second factory machine gun level entity of scattering. You also have, so there's the devil, you also have a name for the enemy, Satan. Ha Satanas in the Greek. And Satan, as you probably well know, means the accuser. 
If you're in the realm of accusation, you can see the effects of the work of the satanic. You and I do this. This is often the default mode of our own lives. At least I could speak for myself. I'm very ready, very quick and ready to accuse and to point the finger, to blame, to finger point, to gossip, to accuse. But the Holy Spirit lifts up, mends, heals, affirms the personhood of humanity of the other. This is something that I tell my students. When you guys are, are, are ready to accuse or you see accusation, stop and ask yourself, am I in the realm? Am I participating in the realm? And this is, I say this to shock them, of the demonic and the satanic. But accusation is the effects of the work of the accuser. The father of lies is another name for the enemy. Uh, the enemy is called the father of lies, falsehood and untruth, the very opposite of life. Even in this passage today, Paul says that we're to live in the light. Now think about how destructive lies are. Think about how disoriented they tear us apart. Uh, they reduce our humanity. Think about how lies have affected you. Somebody has probably lied about you in your life and what that has done to you, how that has hurt you, how that has caused pain and heartache and psychological discord. <clears throat> we can also think about the lies that we tell ourselves. Lies that bring us down. I actually know a person who has been hospitalized because of the lies that have done severe and, and great damage to his psyche. Hospitalized. I know also how lies have dam damaged my own life. They metastasize and they bring scattering in their wake. And, off, and shame itself is also underwritten by lies. The shame that we feel is underwritten by these lies that we tell ourselves and that the father of lies tells us and whispers in our ear. And shame is not the same thing as guilt. When we feel guilty, we often feel guilty for something that we've done. But shame makes us feel bad about our very selves. And that's a really destructive thing. And that shame is often underwritten by lies. I wasn't planning on saying this, but my friends, if you hear lies in your brain, if you hear, if you hear the enemy telling you lies, exercise it. Do this. Just say, you're not welcome here and move it out of your brain. I'm not saying it's an actual demon or anything, but when you hear a lie, you say, you're not welcome here put, and, 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 and move on. And you might have to do that a lot, but say, you are not welcome here.
Finally, the last, the last name is Jesus calls the devil a murderer from the beginning in John 8. But God is life. And Jesus said that I have come to, have, to, to bring life and to have a life more abundantly to the full. Think about the 20th century. It was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. It was marked by death, right? The devil is a murderer. And it seems, if you think about the 20th century, that there was deeper stuff at play than just political disagreements and psychological categories and explanations and geopolitical realities. It seems to be the case that there was something deeper at play what Paul might refer to as the powers that want to bring death in their wake. Um, I remember a a while back, I read a book on Columbine, uh, the first sort of massive school, school shooting in America. And what was really interesting about reading that book was, um, yeah, it was true that these two young men were, uh, you know, felt, felt out like they were outcasts. I don't know. I don't remember exactly, but they may have been bullied, but, um, it also seems to be that something deeper was, was in play. There are forces out there and they want to bring death and destruction. You guys are like, Josh, who is this dude that you're bringing in here, man? This is like, this guy just said 20th century, bloodiest history, devil, Satan, father of lies. Um, anyways, so, but the good news is that Christ has defeated the powers. Colossians says that he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Christ has defeated the powers, and Christ is the cosmic Lord that is seated on high. However, the powers are still active at some level. Slide two, Josh. I didn't create those circles, Josh did. And that's, a, that's true. See, I accused him. <laughs> um, okay, so, so, um, so yes, uh, the powers are still active at some level. We live in two worlds. Uh, has Josh, I'm sure Josh has talked to you about this theological category of the already and the not yet, right? So Paul um, speaks of that we live in two ages at the, at the same time. The new age was begun and inaugurated by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes in and he brings the kingdom of God, right? And he's died, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, and he's at the right hand of the Father, right? And the kingdom of God is on the move. It's like a mustard seed, it will grow, but we're not at the end yet. There's the not yet, the eschaton, the time in which God brings new creation into all its fullness and makes all things new. So we have this overlap between the old age, the present age, the age to come, and that's, well, for me, that looks like a football, okay? We live in the football. You you guys are like, no, actually, after church today, I live in the football. Um, Okay. but you understand what I'm saying. We're in this time where the, where, where the old age and the new age overlap. And so there is some role that the powers play in our lives. They are cosmic realities. <clears throat> now, this, the football, is the context under which Paul is 
you know, sort of writing. This is the stage where Paul wants us to embody God's redemptive drama. Now, as you look through Ephesians, what does that look like? In, in 4.24, Paul says, you're to clothe yourselves in this new humanity that Christ has created. In 5.1, Paul calls us to be imitators of God. In 5.8, Paul says, we're to live as children of the light. And now he's saying in today's passage, be strong, put on the armor of God. Now, what, the way that I read this and how I'm taking it is putting on the armor of God and putting on this new self, clothing ourselves, is the other metaphor he uses, are variations of the same theme. You're doing the same thing. He's just using different metaphors there. Paul has a very, very high ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. And, when we, and so think about when we meet Paul. When we meet Paul, here's a way that I want to try to convey that. When we meet Paul in Acts, right, we see him at the stoning of Stephen. I'm sure you know this story. And then in Acts 9, after Jesus has died and is resurrected and is at the right hand of the Father, uh, Paul is persecuting the church and and Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. Does anybody know, recall, what what Jesus says to Paul? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Amen, my brother. Thank you for that. Bible trivia champion, right there, boom. Okay, good, thank you. Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Now, I just realized this recently in my life. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but when he confronts Paul, he says, why do you persecute me? And the reason is that Jesus so identifies with the church that persecution of the church is persecution of Jesus, right? The, the, the body, the church is, as we know, the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Christ. So there is a connection there. Um, so now listen to Paul's ecclesiology in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians, uh, in, in the book itself, but in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the church... Paul says, is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the body of Christ. In 2.10, Paul says that we are his workmanship. In 2.19 through 22, Paul says we are a holy temple in the Lord. And temples are where gods dwell. In 3.10, Paul says, I'm going to sort of flip over that. He says, through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the, in the heavenly places. This is, this is tricky, this is a, but somehow what Paul's suggesting here is that the church is making known the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities. Now, today's passage, Paul's speaking, not, he's speaking to the church. 
He's us, not me. And Paul says, stand. Stand firm. In fact, Paul says stand four times. And then he mentions these six items that he ties, ties to armor. He talks about truth, you know, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. So you have truth and righteousness and peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. And Paul is using this armor language to suggest that the Christian life is not passive. It's meant to be marked by watchfulness. There is, for Paul, a real spiritual antagonism in the world. It's against your spiritual well-being. It's against the shalom of God. It's against the shalom of God that, that God wants to bring into this world. Even Peter in Peter 5.8 reminds us to be watchful as well. He says, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So Paul mentions these sort of six gifts or virtues that we have in God. Again, he mentions truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. And insofar as the church is a community that is marked and shaped by these things, these gifts, these virtues that have been given to us by God, insofar as we're marked by these things, we embody and display and put on and participate in Christ's work of redemption. We are to inhabit the victorious drama of God in Christ through the Spirit by which he is bringing, fighting, battling, raging war against the forces of destruction. I've never in my life been more convinced in the necessity of the church as an entity that exists in this world. I've always been very, very uh, key on the church. I've always thought it was a priority. We need the church, but even more so now, I'm more convinced of the necessity of the church. Our world needs a sphere of influence where people are coming in and experiencing, experiencing the shalom of God. where they're not experiencing destruction and scattering and accusation. A theologian that I read in preparation for this, Timothy Gombus, said, through his people, God is asserting and defending his own sovereign victory over the forces that are seeking to destroy his good creation and thwart his purposes of redeeming those aspects of creation that are broken and enslaved to Satan, sin, and death. For whatever reason, my friends, and my brothers and sisters, I, for whatever reason, God has chosen us, the church, the body of Christ, 
to be the agency whereby Jesus Christ is raging war against the evil powers. But note this too, we do not engage the powers directly. Don't do that. We see their effects. They foster chaos, hostility, exploitation, injustice, idolatry, idolatrous practices. They foster oppression, destruction, alienation, bitterness, division, arrogance, corrupted cultural patterns, systems of oppression, broken relationships, enslavement, racism, addiction. These are the effects of the powers, and this is what we battle. So what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What's your job? We're called to gather as a temple of the victorious Christ. That's your calling. You have a role to play. You have a job. This place, the church, this church, my church, the church, should be a place that's marked by restoration, reconciliation, love, humility, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. And we, and we overcome the powers when we imitate Christ, when we put on Christ. And our warfare, I dare say, is marked by seemingly mundane embodiments of the cruciform life. Humility, turning the other cheek, reconciliation, forgiveness, believing the best, getting rid of anger, bitterness, moving toward your enemy in love. This is how we engage in spiritual warfare. This is how we put on Christ. This is how we put on the armor by these mun seemingly mundane yet powerfully, powerfully shalom building th um, practices and activities. So, something to put, something to hang your hat on, something practical. In, in, in six, in, uh, and I'll end with this, in, in six, in Ephesians 6, uh, 18, after Paul says these things, he says, pray in the spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert and always per persevere in supplication for all the saints. If you're experiencing the effects of the powers, if you find yourself ready to scatter, to finger point, to contribute to destruction, pray. And when you pray, at some level, you're entering into the life of the Trinity. You're communing with the triune God as we pray with God in harmony with God against these destructive things. And also, to begin here, here in this space.
Broken relationships are victories for the powers. It's what they want. They want you to be scattered. They want you to accuse. That's, that's their goal. Your spiritual warfare is marked by habits of reconciliation. Paul says in 4.3, he exhorts us to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So put on the armor of God and that might mean someone in this community. Bring bonds of peace, of unity, and forgiveness. As I've spoken this morning, you may, you may have thought of a person in this community or in the broader community of your life where, where you need to do that work. You need to bring peace. You need to bring unity. And you need to bring forgiveness. A few years ago, I'm an elder at my church. A, a guy came, asked to come to an elder meeting, which nobody does because they're boring. Um, and um, after the meeting, he, he just said, hey, guys, I want you to know that, that I've been... I've been slandering you guys and I've been saying bad things about you guys to the church. And he said, I just, I told, I, I already, I already repented of it from, to the people that I did it to, but I also, I also wanted to, to come to you and, and apologize and repent. And, and we, we forgave him and we prayed and we embraced and it was very, very, very beautiful. Um, it seems mundane, but notice what he did was he, he sort of, the, the life of the spirit was infused into our church in that activity, right? The very warfare that needed to happen in our church to stop scattering and division and accusation and pointing finger was stopped. And... It was healing. It brought, the, it brought unity, bonds of peace. And that's the kind of work that we need to do in the church for the sake of the church, for the sake of the world. And today is the day of salvation, my friends. If you have habits of reconciliation that you need to do, wage war and be reconciled. I will end with Paul's benediction and I'll speak it over you. Peace be to the whole community. Love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.